So you're going to set us up and then I'll say, so John, what is Zodiac about? Yep. You got That's it. What we're doing. We're pros now. We've done it. We've done freaking a thousand of these. It feels like nothing it. will go wrong. Hey, everybody. This week we are listening to. Oh, my God. Wow. We're not listening. Not pros after we're watching. <sighs> OK, center. Here we go. Hey, everybody. This week we are watching David Fincher's 2007 classic Zodiac. Uh, just as a, as a heads up, we will have plenty of spoilers in this episode. Please watch the movie first. We it is a great movie. And again, we're going to spoil all of it pretty quickly. So, John, what is Zodiac about? Well, Mike Zodiac, David Fincher's 2008 masterpiece, tells one of the most terrifying, haunting true life stories imaginable. The story of living with a conspiracy theorist. Jake Gyllenhaal brilliantly plays the part of a lunatic obsessed with a decades old unsolved murder spree and successfully drives away his wife, his friends, and his co-workers with his wide-eyed, crazed rants, connecting the killings to bodies of water, summer solstices, winter solstices, and astrological events. If you've ever looked around and thought, where the hell did all these dumbass conspiracy theorists come from? You owe it to yourself to see Fincher's retelling of the earliest of these dumbass conspiracy theorists. Well done. Welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. Yes, sir. I don't know if I should have said the thing about us being pros. Right after that, my headphones died because I didn't charge them. This is a reoccurring theme in my life, actually. What, me disappointing you or? No, actually, we have had like three weeks in a row of really bizarre technical errors recording for the <laughs> sermons. And oh, that's none, of, none of them make any sense. They're all out of nowhere. So it's just like one of those things. I don't know. Hey, everybody, welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life, a podcast where uh, two movie geeks take their favorite movies way too seriously. My name is Jonathan Devine. I'm joined by Mike Overstreet. Hello. Again, this week we are talking about uh, Zodiac, David Fincher's 2007 film, sort of telling the story of the decades-long investigation of the 1960s and 70s uh, serial killer uh, Zodiac. And the attempt to discover his true identity, uh, which ultimately doesn't really lead anywhere. Spoilers on that. Um, Mike, what is your history with this movie? Yeah, this movie is really interesting. I mean, I've been a huge Fincher fan forever. And it came out in 2007, which is the most historic movie year of my generation. I mean, sure. Certainly of this this century. So, far. yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was like Michael Clayton, There Will Be Blood, uh, No Country, Assassination of Jesse James. You know, basically every every weekend I was going to see a movie that is now in my top 100 of some list when it comes to film. And in a sense, I remember this movie came out. And I was really excited because it's like I said, big Fincher movie, big Fincher head. And then it came out 
And it kind of got swallowed up by those other movies. Um, I remember I saw it with the wrong crowd, I guess you could even say, um, kind of some people who, you know, weren't really taking it super seriously, talking during it, all that good stuff. And I also went in with some of the wrong expectations. You know, I was kind of used hmm. to more thriller format from Fincher uh, when it comes to Seven and and just movies in that ilk. And I remember this one felt very long the first time I saw it. And it felt very slow. And like I said, I was distracted by some of the people I was with. So I came away being like, well, that had good moments, but didn't think much about it. And then I came back to it in college and I watched it alone uh, by myself some night (laughs) and kind of one of those things where you just realize you were totally wrong about a film that in a lot of ways, my expectations and the setting I saw it in just uh, made me miss that it is one of those slow burn masterpieces. And I mean, we'll talk about this, I'm sure. I think it's Fincher's best film. So um, sure. Unbelievable movie. It's now vaulted up my list. And I feel like every time I see it, it jumps up another spot of my all time list. So, yeah, that's kind of my history with it. How about you? Yeah, I uh, so, you know, I have a more complicated history with Fincher. I don't always love him, to be honest. And I also am notoriously squeamish for films. So, like, I've, I've never even bothered attempting to watch Seven, for example. Ooh. And uh, I kind of struggled with uh, trying to think. I struggled a little bit with uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo that that gets a little rough in there. I did. Really? Like it, Why? Why was that rough? Uh, nothing. Nothing. It was actually, okay. you know, it was such a con- It was too tame. Yes. Yeah. It, it was too it simple was like, of a dude, movie. Come on. Shock me. A little I wanted bit. him to ratchet up a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't get around to this one for a while. I did finally watch it long after probably in the last four years. So long after the uh, Fincher Assange. Uh, which I think is kind of like the social network gone girl was sort of the like, Oh, this guy, pretty much everyone is like, Oh, this guy's great. And we love him. Um, So I finally got around to it and I I think we're going to end up talking about expectations a lot because I think this is the part of the brilliance of this movie is how much it, it uh, sort of screws with your sense of expectations. Right. Sure. And so I had the same experience for me ended up being, actually a very positive first viewing experience because if it had been the movie that I think everyone assumes it is, I would have liked it a lot less if it had been just kind of a standard sort of thriller, a standard sort of, uh, you know, uh, investigation, serial killer, horror thriller, David Fincher movie. I actually wouldn't have necessarily loved that movie. Yeah. And instead what, what we got is something very, very different. Um, Obviously, you know, in in terms of the way that is structured, it doesn't really have a payoff. And that actually will segue really nicely. The first section of the podcast, we talk about why this movie works. And the first thing I wrote down in all capital letters was structure, structure, structure. I think that this movie is uh, just such a great example of how you can uh, make your plot structure do something interesting in the context of a film. And so the thing I think we keep talking about and I keep kind of talking about here is the fact that the movie doesn't really have a climax or a resolution, arguably. Yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, it, it sort of doesn't build to anything at all. It, it's kind of episodic in nature, I, I realized this last time watching it. And 
every episode feels a little bit like you're getting closer, but about three quarters of the way through, they start kind of spitting out. And by the end, you sort of don't have anything tangible to grasp on. Um, it certainly is a destabilizing movie. I think, I think everyone because of that watches it and then becomes, you sort of, it's the movie that finishes and you kind of say, wait, what? Yeah. Uh, I have, I know of at least one person, a roommate of mine I used to live with who actually hated it for that reason. He was like, that was such a bad movie. Uh, he was obviously, uh, an idiot, but still <laughs> I understand why I understand why he would have come where he's coming from. Cause he, he said he was like, nothing happened in that movie. It was so slow and it didn't go anywhere. And I'm like, yeah, that's the point. That's what's so cool. Uh, and he didn't really see it that way. So, uh, what do, what do you, do you have any thoughts like about the structure and the way that it eschews a traditional, I think, thriller narrative, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that, Fincher is really good at is asking disturbing questions, but he also, it's so funny. He tends to saturate his movies with his very uh, dark worldview that provides answers to those questions, right? You know, seven, I know you haven't seen it, but is a classic example where, you know, he's asking big questions about purpose and life and, uh, you know, death and any number of things. And he answers that by putting his characters in this, symbolic place that's basically hell so he's i mean he's telling you the answer is that you live in a living hell right um and he often has some very dark themes like that that kind of impose his worldview onto the audience what i love about this movie is that every part of it it asks really dark questions but it provides absolutely no answers and uh it's very clear that he is trying to leave you know, the answers to some of the biggest questions in the film completely open-ended. And I think that seeps all the way down the film on the technical level. It definitely seeps into the structure. One of the things I usually hate, I think it's lazy about most films is when you have at the bottom of the screen, the date, the place, you know, timestamp kind of a thing. Um, Usually it's just like, like I said, it's usually a pretty lazy way to tell time. But in this movie, it's fantastic because what it essentially does is it makes you realize how much time is passing in a film that doesn't necessarily in its structure um, create a very, I'm trying to think, like steady movement of time, if that makes sense. So like the first 30 minutes takes place over like a couple of weeks and, you know, the little timestamps are letting you know two days later, three days later. And then the film starts jumping months and then it starts jumping years and the windows of those jumps are completely different in length. So by the end of the film, you're completely disoriented in terms of like, wait, how much time has passed? It's been 20 years, right? And in a way, that does a couple of things. I mean, I think for one, like you said, it keeps you completely discombobulated. But in the other way, it captures just how grueling a case like this would have been in the sense that it drags on and on. And eventually the years blurred together and the facts blur together and the, you know, even the pursuit of the, uh, of catching this killer becomes completely blurred with all the lives of the characters, if that makes sense. And, and you only can do that by making a film that does not have a climax, does not have a resolution, does not have basically keyed, key road signs about where you are 
over the course of this investigation. And in that sense, it's brilliant, right? It's it's a form yeah. and function completely melded together. And I I freaking love it. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that they, like you said, it serves to numb your sense to the time passage, I think. And it, it definitely is disorienting the first time, especially the second time watching it. I think you realize exactly what you were saying, that every single jump, it it's just becomes something that you stop noticing. And then you're asking the same question the characters are asking, which is it's been how long? Like, I love the scene where Ruffalo and uh, Gyllenhaal are talking and, you know, Ruffalo tells him he's like, this was several murders over a few months way back then. Like, why are we still talking about this? He says something of that effect. And I think that it does. It has that same effect on you. You're like, wait, it's been how long? Uh, it, it keeps you discombobulated. It keeps you numb to what's happening to the distance of time. Uh, I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. And they also do some really fascinating uh, things from a writing standpoint, a script standpoint. Like I love that characters come in and out of this movie and are never seen again, like Ruffalo's yeah. partner. Right. It's he's like, I'm not leaving you holding the bag on anything, am I? And he lies and says no, because for him, you know, the Zodiac is still open in his mind yeah. and this his partner wants to get out. And then that character is never seen again. Or um, there are any number of moments like when it has a jump of four years and suddenly um, Downey's character's desk is being replaced by a new a new news person. Right. Yeah. And that's the basically the last time you see him in any journalistic form. I mean, it just is. And it's suddenly like he's yeah. gone. Someone else has taken his place. Uh, and then well, I, there's even I, I think one of the most effective ones is that you don't actually know you're watching the last Zodiac murder until yeah. the end of the movie. Oh, yeah. That's just one of the killings. There's like three or four killings and one of them just happens. And then suddenly, not suddenly, but then you were the end the movie and you're like, Oh, that was the last one. Wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, he, the Zodiac himself just leaves the movie and doesn't even, you know, it's the whole thing that's centering all of this. And suddenly it's just gone. Yeah. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. And I even noticed this time and I don't know if you, You've probably noticed this before, but there's even some small details like I think it's right after the taxi driver murder or right before it. It shows the foundation of a skyscraper being laid. And then a couple of shots later, basically right after they find out that they can't investigate Lee further, there's a montage of the skyscraper being built. And then it's just in the movie or in the shot, basically the rest of the film. And and it does a very fast forward kind of thing. Like I said, it's a montage. So it's another way where you're just like, oh, they built an entire skyscraper in the last 30 seconds. And that's how much time's passed. And yet we just spent 30 minutes in a two week span. Right. Yeah. And again, I think it just throws you off. It makes time almost completely irrelevant. Um, and I guess montage is the other thing I just point to the way he uses the montage with the flood of letters after the attempt to kill the lady and the baby in the car, or they have these stories cut in with the paper and then interviews, the fake confessions. You just never know how much time passed in that window. Right. Was that over the course of a week, months, years? It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. And you know, the thing with the skyscraper reminds me one of the other, why this works. I wrote down, uh, his use of visual effects in general Ugh. is so good 
partially because it's so uh hidden right yeah. like he doesn't he's not a very flashy director in terms of his his digital effects and stuff but he does a great job of using it to add little details like the you know the cities in general the way that time is passing in the characters and the uh landscape of of California i think is tremendous and yeah. um it's all subtle stuff too it's just like little you know, little things with, oh, you know, touching this shot up so that there's no uh, or there's all these cable antennas that aren't there anymore and touching this shot up. So like you're saying with the skyscrapers and making sure that, you know, if this bridge wasn't there, this is also a lot of stuff I had to look up otherwise, because otherwise I wouldn't have known it. Stuff that I looked up or read up in different places, but they did things like, oh, well, this bridge wasn't there. So we have to cut that out of this shot. Ugh. And it's like, we're never going to notice that. But it's it, it it's all of that combined does such a good job of putting you into the evolving world because the whole point of the story yeah. is that the world is moving on beyond the story, but these yeah. people are still locked into it. Yeah, absolutely. Which actually, I wrote down: Is Fincher the best visual effects director in history? And the reason I wrote it is because I I followed up with, like I said, he always hides his effects. Sure. He doesn't like yeah. them being. Kind of like the time where you realize that the two twins in the social network are different actors with a digital composition to make the face the same. This is incredibly smart, but I never noticed it. That's how good it is. Uh, Well, that's I mean, that's something I actually really respect about Fincher, despite the fact that he's a psychopath. um, Yeah. Is that he has this unbelievable ability to flex in movies in a way that doesn't feel unnatural. So I think he does that technically in any number of ways. That's not removed from the actual feel of the movie, you know, kind of like what you're saying. It's this actually fits the movie. You did this with a very distinct, intelligent purpose and it's not distracting. Um, But he also does it in his mastery of, for example, like how to light into set up a horror scene. Right. Yeah. Because this movie isn't a horror film, but, you know, there's a couple of scenes in this movie that are better than 99 percent of horror films I'll ever see in terms of creating a real sense of terror. And almost every part of it is technical. Right. The daylight murder scene at the lake is my nightmare. Um, Yeah. Both the way it builds, but also the way he shoots it and the way it makes you feel like that's something that could absolutely happen to you. Or it's like, you know, it's almost a campfire story where you're like, someone else is here. That's odd. And then there's the way that he cuts the shots as this basically stalker lurks into the scene, comes in and it's haunting. Right. Yeah. And to create terror in broad daylight is incredibly hard to do, but it shows a degree of technical mastery that is unbelievable. Like I said, it's a flex more than anything. Yeah. But it still fits within a movie that feels like a slow burn. It f- still fits within what he's trying to do. So I think he might be. I think you're right. Here's here's how you know that those are effective, too. Uh, when I rewatch this movie, in fe- including this most recent time, I usually skip those scenes. Yeah, I can. I can confess that because I'm just like, ah, I don't actually love horror movies. And those scenes are so stressful and so anxiety inducing. Um, so I skip most of the murders when I rewatch the movie. I do not skip the 
arguably the climax of the movie. Again, it kind of doesn't have one. But the scene at the end where he's meeting with the theater operator (laughs) and uh, one of my favorite lines in film history, not many people have basements in California. Oh, it's so good. And suddenly Graysmith and you are putting together the same puzzle piece of wait, wait, what? And it's right after the handwriting thing where he's like, I wrote all those letters, which earlier we had seen or all those posters which earlier we had seen him say are the closest anything has been to the Zodiac. And by the way, all of this is a tense anxiety inducing scene that once again leads nowhere. Yeah. And we, we have no, not even in terms of knowledge, like that never really comes back in any meaningful way. We're just kind of left with that. And again, that's how the whole movie operates, but that's such a great microcosm of it. Uh, it reminds me a lot of the scene in, once upon a time in Hollywood where again, you know, you have this great director who just randomly decides to flex and include this unbelievably anxiety inducing scene in the middle of his scene in the middle of his movie. That's just as a masterpiece of suspension or suspense, right? Intention. Yeah. Yeah. I actually wrote once upon a time in Hollywood right next to it. Um, yeah. Next to basement scene. And and that, but that's another scene that I mean, when you get down into why is this scene so terrifying, it is all technical. I mean, the use yeah. of light in the basement where it shadows his face. Right. And then there's the yeah. noises and the creaking and and it's all very human. You can imagine yourself as Mr. Graysmith and you are suddenly hearing the noises of an old house. Right. Um, and applying them to dark motives and. And then even the way that, you know, like the director ignores his questions and suddenly he's off screen, but you hear his voice out of the darkness where he says, do you think he saw the film in our theater was inspired, right? It's chilling. It's a totally nowhere moment in the film. Like you said, it's a false, essentially a false clue. Uh, The guy is not the Zodiac, but the way that he lights and shoots that scene and has the light turn off and then you follow um, you're following Gyllenhaal out and you see him walk through the background kind of blurred. Right. Yeah. Isn't and that then great? obviously when he runs to the door and he's panicking and the guy shows up in the mirror behind him. Oh, my goodness. I mean, these are it's masterful. The- I mean, it's masterful technical shooting from the horror genre into a scene yeah. that ends with him unlocking the door, letting him out, saying goodnight and then chuckling to himself. Because he was clearly just messing with Jake Gyllenhaal's character. But yeah. it's, it's just like, yeah. dude. It, again, it doesn't mean anything, but it does so much for the movie. It does also, it's worth noting, make the movie more watchable. Without that, it really would be yeah. a, a kind of a slog. You need those kind of internal internal episodes do ramp up and, and release. But the whole movie doesn't. And that's what's really notable. Yeah. Um, yeah. Something else in that scene that I think uh, is worth talking about. And actually, I'm curious to what your take is, because I have this in the why this works column. I just wrote uh, Jakey G, Mark Ruffalo and RDJ. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal doesn't have a universally good rap from this movie. I know that there are people we both listened to the rewatchables and they had uh, some conflict about his performance. I think it's brilliant. I I think that especially in scenes like that, he is portraying a good intentioned, but incredibly uh, off the rails, over obsessed personality. 
and he does it very well. And I buy it. And frankly, it kind of anchors a lot of the movie for me because it gives me something interesting to follow because uh, it is such a long movie. Yeah. Yeah. No, I actually think, you know, one of the things that Fincher lacks in a lot of movies is a character that can act as a stand in for the audience in almost any way. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of his characters are symbols or they are just too awful for you to find yourself in. <laughs> I mean, just being honest, but you know, he's, he's often trying to convey much deeper truths about humanity through some of these characters in a way that kind of makes it hard to connect to them. And I actually think with a case like this and, and what he's trying to say about time and obsession and very human themes, you need Hall to be the naive character who, um, like you said, good intention, but, kind of a thing. And yeah. I actually think he delivers on that pretty well. And he ca- he has a couple moments where he captures crucial subtext of his character that really ground the film in terms of um, what it's trying to do thematically. Like the moment, for example, when Avery tells him essentially that more deaths have happened on the byway since the Zodiac disappeared. Right. Or happen every month. And he has yeah. this look like his face drops and he's, you know, it is important. And you get a glimpse through his face, his, his acting, his facial acting of the compulsion that is taking place within him. The terror yeah. of him that this doesn't actually matter. Right. And that's critical. And I think if you had a lesser actor do it, you would lose those scenes, those very nuanced scenes. But then also, if you had a actor who took this part way too seriously or you didn't have that Boy Scout demeanor, you would have no connection to the film. So, yeah, while he, he balances those two parts extraordinarily well. So I actually disagree yeah. with most criticism against him. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. You know, the performance reminds me there's a famous quote that I do not remember who said it. I should look that up. At any rate, there's a famous quote from someone that. A fanatic is someone who redoubles their efforts when their aim is forgotten. Yeah. And (laughs) I think that that character is a great example of that, right? That, you know, this starts out as, oh, I'm solving this, this case, but he starts at every time that, you know, the path gets murkier and it becomes less clear where he's supposed to do. He just redoubles his efforts. He just tries even harder. Um, I love the scene. It's one of my favorite scenes when he's his kids are in the kitchen helping him find the connecting it to solstices, I believe. Yeah. And uh, he's like, oh, and they're like, oh, this one was kind of close to that one. Oh, that's good. Write that down. And it's like, no, it's not good. That's the (laughs) what are you doing? Mean anything? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But you but you buy it. You buy the from the performance that's like, yeah, this is this guy is this crazy. And is this determined question mark? Um, but yeah, I, I think it's great. Speed, let's just keep on the actors for a second. Um, I think Ruffalo is a standout here too. I think the three leads, Jake Gyllenhaal, Ruffalo and, and Robert Downey Jr. are all, all stand out pretty well. So uh, I definitely yeah. wrote down, does Ruffalo act in movies anymore? <laughs> and what I mean by that is he kind of feels like Mark Ruffalo in most movies. Just curious what you think. Um, he has unbelievable nuance to his performances, 
But like in terms of accent work and line delivery, I'm always just like, hey, that's Mark Ruffalo. I don't know. Maybe you disagree. See, but, uh, I think he's funny. great, great in this I, movie. I just don't know what he's yeah. doing. See, it's funny because to me, like some actors can just sort of do that. Like, you know, some sure. people it's like they get to I, I almost want to say that we think of acting too narrowly that I don't think it's it's only being able to become someone else to like transform yourself into this thing that's unrecognizable. I think some actors are it's good if they're just like, oh, I'm just going to kind of be me. It's going to work. Uh, I kind of see that as the let me think uh, Robert Redford sort of has that vibe. He's always kind of Robert Redford, but you're okay with it because sure. he he's just you're like, yeah, fine. I'd watch just this guy be this guy for a while. It's kind of the Tom Hanks, right? Tom Hanks is a, obviously a great actor, but he also you you always kind of know it's him and he's always kind of, you know, playing to that. But he makes it work. Uh, I'll throw Sean Connery in there, too. He's on my mind. He passed away a few days ago. Uh, uh, rest in peace. But. I think he had that kind of thing too. And and part of it's charisma. Uh, I think that Mark Ruffalo is like that too. So in this movie, there is a, there is a degree to which, yeah, he's kind of just being Mark Ruffalo, but he's portraying a, a sort of legendary and charismatic police officer. So you kind of are okay with it, or at least I'm kind of okay with it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's still fun to watch. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he does anger, of, smoldering anger yeah, go ahead. better in this movie than maybe I've ever seen him do. Um, th- he has this rage underneath the surface that he captures pretty powerfully in a number of scenes. Yeah. Obviously, the scenes where it boils over, you get a, a pretty big taste of it. But I actually like the moments where he just seems annoyed all the time or frustrated. Yeah. And you it radiates off of him. And that is a sign of a pretty great performance, obviously. I love the shot when uh, Graysmith calls the house after he's Ugh. the news. He has the whole scandal and his wife is, is kind of arguing with Graysmith. And then Ruffalo comes back. Toski comes over, takes the phone from her and without listening to it, just hangs it up and then yeah. walks away. Yeah. Uh, like you said, it's kind of that I'm done. I'm out. Uh, I'm frustrated. There's so much emotions in, in that. Uh, yeah, I think that's a great. And it's like you said, it, it's all under the surface kind of. Um, but you do like him, I think you do. You are oh, still yeah. there's there's a charisma there, you know, he's probably the only likable character in the movie main character. There's a lot of side characters, um, mm. you know, because obviously Downey who puts in I mean, and he's another one who puts in he just is Robert Downey Jr. But I actually really like that in this movie because you watch the just Robert Downey Jr. vibes basically degrade into just sloth and ugliness. Um, By the end of it, obviously, he's just a beaten down drunk who is the meanest person. Like the way he treats Gyllenhaal is awful. You're just like, well, you you didn't have to say that. And and it it is kind of heartbreaking, right? Because like Gyllenhaal, you obviously get the impression does not the, the character Graysmith does not have a lot of friends. And he obviously has a connection. One of the saddest scenes in hindsight is when the new reporter comes in. Oh, um, what and Jill and Hall says something to him about like, oh, a great reporter used to sit here. And actually, I think the thing that's saddest is you kind of are watching like, uh, that's not really true. Yeah. But yeah. 
you so you actually cared about this person and because of that you're a little bit blinded and you're like oh this guy is great and it's like oh he's not really not uh but that's sort of you know that's the the friendship connection that means a lot that, that you have with him um it's weird to think by the way so this is 2007 so this is one year before iron man so i robert Downey jr is not robert Downey jr at this point he's still kind of the semi-washed up um troubled past you know brilliant actor who never got it all together and it's interesting that you're right he's sort of doing the robert downey jr thing here and basically one year later he does it but without the sad part at the end and it makes him into one of the most you know popular actors certainly in the last 15 years it's a little weird well i'm not sure if you know this actually um this is one of those hollywood kind of stories and no one knows if it's you know apocryphal or true but there's a lot of rumor that essentially the way david fincher shot this movie and he's notorious for torturing his actors with you know a million shots and redos and he's trying to break his actors and he's so attentive to detail and believe it or not robert Downey jr is not into that um he is far (laughs) more of a one shot and wrap it kind of guy a lot of people actually believe that this is the movie that sent him into making essentially pop culture for the rest of his career because if you yeah. notice, he hasn't made a serious movie since uh, he went into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And that was it for dramatic acting, pretty much for Robert Downey Jr. And a lot of people point to this movie as essentially what broke him, you could argue, or just made him realize That's he doesn't want to do movies like Zodiac for a living when he can make a billion dollars. I don't but, need to do uh, 150 takes of this scene when I you know what? I do remember that because I remember that specific quote. I didn't look it up this time when I watched it, but I did like a couple years ago. I remember the specific quote uh, and I, I do think it was Robert Downey Jr. It might have been one of the other actors, but it was about this movie where they said, you know, I feel like sometimes five takes is fine. I don't think you always need 400 takes. Yeah. I think that's a little bit like stupid. It's, and it's one of those things where I, I am not an actor and I've never been on a set, but I think it would be, that's an interesting argument that neither of us are qualified to, to weigh in on, but well, no. uh, for someone like Hall, I think that performance, you clearly see where that, that theory is working. Yeah. Right. And it actually, I mean, obviously it's making him crazy and you can see that in the part. Yeah. Well, and it also sends him on a slew of these kind of movies, very odd, you know, often destabilized characters. uh, This is before Nightcrawler, right? Yeah. Yeah. This sends him on the Nightcrawler stretch, essentially, where he stops making the Brokeback Mountains of the world and starts making movies about sociopaths and whatnot. So it is interesting seeing how those two paths diverge. It's actually really funny. There's a great, I can't remember if it's Conan or Letterman. There's a great interview with Ruffalo where he's describing shooting this film with film with Fincher. And essentially they've done a bunch of takes and Ruffalo is getting sick of it. And Fincher, or they essentially nail a scene acting wise. And Ruffalo is like, that's it. And then Fincher calls cut and he's like, oh, my goodness, what now? What is he going to tell me I did wrong? What is he going to complain about? And Fincher walks right past him without saying anything and rotates a extra three layers back, like 45 degrees at their shoulders, walks back to his chair and says, let's run it again. 
Oh my God. And it's one of those things where you just imagine doing that for six months with this person. Yeah. <laughs> and you, yeah, you'd go I insane. Mean, it would make me crazy too, but but that is the the insanity and the genius of David Fincher, that attention to detail. But I can also yeah. see myself wanting to be Iron Man afterwards. That's for sure. <laughs> wanting to just just cash that paycheck after that. Just yeah. you know, let me go back to my Italian uh, villa or something, and and just just take this one a little bit easy. Uh, well, what do you, do you have anything? Why this works? Why this movie works? Yeah, I actually have uh, two major ones. I think one of them kind of relates to the what we talked about structure, which is I think this movie does an amazing job of capturing the weight and the absurdity of this sort of case. You know, I think in terms yeah. of procedure, like police procedural, it's actually fascinating. You know, there's this element of the entire story revolves around both the missing and catching of incredibly small details that prove to make either all the difference in the world or produce some of the biggest rabbit hole kind of misses or false leads of the entire Zodiac case. Right. Um, and, and, you know, it hints at it with some really small writing bits. Like there's this great moment where Jake catches that he's or the Zodiac's been referencing the most dangerous game. And then Downey's character says that character's name starts with a Z and there's a pause. And then it's a cut to black in the next murder. And obviously that has nothing to do with reality. Like that's not where the Zodiac got his name from. The letter Z being involved is not important, but there's just like these awesome moments where the entire story and really the procedure of the case hangs on both small successes of them catching a detail that they had previously missed or small failures. Like I said, rabbit holes that lead to nowhere Um, moments where, you know, they get the ethnicity wrong over a police radio and the Zodiac killer essentially escapes um, and is never caught because the police officers don't stop them. And I think that's, that's profound because it really makes the whole, every thing that these police officers do, feels so much heavier because of that. Right. And the film captures the weight of like any misstep could lead to this going on for 40 years and never getting resolved. And that's heavy. Well, and that's Um, where, and that's where the structure, it it doubles back and and helps the movie once again, because I think one of the best things about the movie is that because you don't have a clear answer at the end, the movie indicates towards someone, but because even that is technically an unsolved thing, you don't even know which details are important. And that's one yeah. of the most frustrating parts is that, you know, do I throw out and they, and it happens as they're having these conversations, they'll say, well, maybe this one was just an outlier because every other piece of evidence adds up except for this one thing. And it's like, well, yeah, but if we're doing that, then every piece of evidence besides this other one thing points this way so clearly. And yeah, you see absolutely. how quickly all of these facts and details and things become, become mud and and just impenetrable um i think it's also you know it's it's worth noting uh just from an investigation standpoint first of all this was a hallmark case and i think they do a great job because one of the reasons why it's considered that it was able to go on for so long and he was never caught at the time there was no regular there there was no investigative agency that would have stepped in and been able to handle that and they do a great job of portraying all of the uh, inability for the different 
offices to cooperate. They have different information. They have different, you know, they can't telefax something over because they don't have one yet. So yeah. they have to mail it. And so he's like, well, wait, didn't you hear that this office said this? Well, this murder wasn't actually in our precinct. It was in the next one over. Have you talked to them yet? And it's just maddening. Uh, and he's actually telling you an interesting thing about the case, uh, just in a, in, in a different, you know, in a more interesting way than an exposition or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually, and I mean, I know there isn't a climax to the movie, but you know what I love about that muddying of all the facts is yeah. the scene where Jake Gyllenhaal and Garofalo are laying out the timeline in the diner and connecting yeah. the dots. That scene is so unbelievably climactic. It is so yeah. good. It is such a good feeling. Like it's amazing. And it's because they've tied you in all these knots and they've misled you. And to finally have someone just go boom, boom, boom. And then when he builds to door to door, that is less yeah. than 50 yards. And he says, is, is that true? I've walked it. Oh, yeah. it's so good. Like it is so it's good. It's a great, great scene. But it's but sati- again, it's satisfying because of the way they've structured the movie, right? And, yeah. Uh, anyway, and it's the most, it's the most uh, gratification you get in the whole movie, arguably. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's also it's also worth mentioning on this note too that again, part of the so, so the pre production for this movie was I think over a year. And much of that time was Fincher and the screenwriter, and I think one of the producers, just doing the investigation. They actually just spent months just solving uh, the Zodiac murder, just solving this, just going through the books, going through the original archives, trying finding to just, finding Ted Cruz, finding Ted Cruz, <laughs> uh, you know, giving him the interview, just trying to add everything up. Uh, but that really shows, right? That it's like, oh, the, you know, they are actually, th- there's this part of it. It's not quite veracity because I don't know. It's still a movie, but clearly the obsession with details, I think, carries over. Yeah. And is part yeah. of what makes the movie so great. Uh, yeah, no, I think it, I think it's brilliant and disorienting. I have curiosity. Have you read the book? I kind of wanted to. I want to now. Yeah. I do know that the book and the movie uh really set it up where arthur lee allen is, is so clearly like the guy that it is in a way that apparently a lot of other sources push back on yeah we'll come which in a way yeah we'll, we'll come, come back, back to that uh, which in a way is interesting though uh because it's like oh it's still a mystery to this day yeah yeah um, which which i would actually say you know is the last thing i would say about what makes this film really work um and like I said, we'll come back to that other aspect and what didn't work, I think. But the parts of this film that really build mystery over who the Zodiac is, yeah. is so successful. I mean, we've talked about it before, but they use different actors for each murder. So they look physically yeah. different. Um, more than any other movie, they kind of capture how a mystery like this would feel. Like I said, from the procedural and police side of things, where there are these super random moments that you feel like you got lucky and then they lead to nothing or they move the case. The Zodiac saying it was his birthday to the maid being kind of what breaks it. But it always feels like those facts are slipping through your fingers or there's too many to hold. And the mystery is kind of swallowing them up. And I even noticed in a small way, and then I would love to hear what you have to think about this. But 
the way that like the first murder and they do this a number of times, you have him come up holding the flashlight and the gun, right? Approaching like a police officer shoots them. And then the police officer that shows up actually is shrouded in darkness and walks up in the exact same way. Cause he's a real police officer, yeah. but it's brilliant because every, basically he enters the scene just like the Zodiac. So it creates yeah. this idea that like anybody could be the Zodiac yeah. or nobody. Right. And oh, it's just, it's a fantastic sense of unknowability of just utter mystery over who the Zodiac is, you know, until the end. But yeah, I, I think that's something that is a strength of this movie when it leans into that in really fascinating ways. I think that's all good. Let's move on to a, a, a difficult conversation in this context, maybe easier than last week, but uh, still, I don't have that much written down. But the next question is, what holds this movie back from working even better? Um, you, did, you have one kind of just on that train? Yeah, I think the, it makes it very clear who they think the Zodiac is. I think um, it shows that hand you know, maybe a little bit too much is Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it is. It does have like the cute ending where the guy says at least an eight out of ten that this is the guy Which who is shot great. me. And Which I mean, is great. a great yeah. line. <laughs> but, you know, between the interview scene where it's like, is there anyone who is that obviously the Zodiac in this movie where Lee has like the watch and the boots and everything? And it's like, this yeah. guy is the Zodiac. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then between that and in the ending, they're fantastic scenes that ratchet the tension up, but it's pretty clear who Fincher and co think the Zodiac was. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I just Mm -hmm. think it from a movie that's not trying to give you answers. It still tries to give you answers in those moments. And I'm not sure that's the best part of it. In a way, I, I wish that there was more balance, like in the context of like, like, what we just talked about that we really like in that very last scene when he only says eight out of 10, I kind of wanted more of that. Yeah. A little exactly. bit more of the, like, keep it a little bit shrouded. Um, and, you know, and I guess I don't know, but that's just partially because of what I, I perceive Fincher's trying to do is make you unstable and unknowing. Yeah. And uh, doesn't it even say though, in the closing text that there's a, uh, a DNA sample that doesn't match Arthur Lee Allen. Yeah, from the envelope, right? Right, and and, and so again, you're throwing again, that like into stuff the like that, tag. like yeah. yeah, just just to like keep you on edge of like I really don't know, yeah. and um and so you're right though it does almost it, it's weird that he does that but also kind of indicates pretty clearly what he thinks it is. So well, and he's uh, such I, a I agree with that. he's such an intentional director like we talked about where every scene he knows what he wants you to feel. And he does everything he can to make you feel it. So the fact that I felt confident that Lee is the Zodiac kind of points me to he wanted me to feel that way. Now, maybe he is ultra meta and he is. That's the point. But I actually do think he's showing his hand. Right. And sure. And I think that's made even more evident by including something like the DNA test in the postscript and not making that a bigger scene in the movie. Um I think that just shows that he's kind of bulldozing over it. He's leaving the door open, but I think we can surmise that he has a strong thought that he wants us to take away on who this person was. So sure. Yeah, I agree. 
Um, other things that hold the movie back from working better. I wrote uh, all of the wife characters, <laughs> especially Jake Gyllenhaal's <laughs> wife. They just all seem two dimensional. And I feel yeah. like he's had this problem before. Uh, yeah. He. A lot of side characters and of his movies end up feeling kind of weak and read into this however you would like to. But a lot of his side characters also tend to be women and his main characters tend to be men. Not always true. Gone Girl exists. Girl with Dragon Tattoo exists. Um, But it is true that often he is focusing on male main characters. Very like like I I forgot his the Gyllenhaal's wife wife's character, partially because she doesn't do anything the whole movie. Uh, she like leaves him sort of, and that's kind of the main yeah. thing she does. And I'm just like, okay, I just feel like, I, I feel like we could have just done a little better, you know? I don't know. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, as a theme, you know, I think, I think panic room, you know, girl drag tattoo. Oh yeah. I forgot about that. Gone yeah. girl are the only ones with really female leads of their own complexity, even though sure. you can make in, make the argument that, and gone girl and girl drag tattoo that for them to have complexity, they also have to be sociopaths or at the very least yeah. committing violence on people. But that also might just be Fincher's worldview. Uh, yeah. But also he did, he didn't write also both of those are based on other material. Yeah, exactly. Noting on a very famous, two very famous books. So, but uh, I agree with you because yeah. as side characters, they kind of only exist to be thorns on the side of the obsessive pursuing their goal. And yeah. obviously he, he sees himself as an obsessive trying to chase perfection or control. So it is interesting that like all they really do is nag at why they're giving up so much to pursue what they want. Yeah. And that's a little disturbing when you get into the subtext of it, but he also puts you as a viewer into the perspective of wanting them to get out of the way. Right. Cause you're like, Oh, I I want Gyllenhaal to keep pursuing or Gray Smith to keep, pursuing this story and i want to see what comes next and i really kind of wish those scenes are kind of a drag and i'm like i really kind of wish she would you know get out of the way so that we could get back to the you know looking for the facts and all of this stuff um and so yeah it's it's an interesting case i'm not saying you know um, i'm not making a strong statement about it they're just two-dimensional characters and yeah i think it holds the movie back a little bit but my last thing on what holds the movie back um I wrote, I'm probably alone on this. I actually think a lot of people would say the opposite. Uh, people I know have said the opposite, but I actually find the first half of the movie a little difficult to get through in terms of being less interesting. I, I Until the movie settles on Robert Graysmith, I actually find it, when it's most traditionally a thriller film, I find it less interesting. And there's a point about halfway, I think it's around the four-year jump, where we really settle in on Gyllenhaal and Graysmith and it really becomes a much more complex movie because it's less of a acute mystery. And that's when I really tune in and I'm really there. The whole first half I actually find relatively difficult to watch. I, I, I I rarely, I watch the second half more than the first half. So that might just be me. I don't know if you have thoughts on that, but no, I, I mean, I think, it's funny because you can't have the this is one of those films where I'm like, oh, it's too long. But then I'm like, well, you actually can't have what makes it good you without the length. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's kind of how I feel with the first half of the film is you need the excitement 
of the beginning of the investigation. You need the failures. You need the mystery and the, you know, the who done it, so that that can never get answered and then spiral into obsession and delusion and all the things that make the second half of the movie so great when it does focus on Gray Smith. Yeah. So it, it's kind of a chicken or the egg. I agree with you. The second half of the film is the most enjoyable for me. And really, I think he was smart in putting, I mean, other than the fact that this is how the actual murders went, but it's actually smart as a structural thing too, to put those scenes in the first half. Cause it does break up a film that just isn't super exciting for the first half. Right. Yeah. So he throws in those moments of real terror to kind of keep breaking up the monotony of like journalism. Huzzah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then by the time that the murders stop, you're into the world of Robert Graysmith. And that's when the film takes off on its own legs. But um, so I, I agree with you. I just don't know what else you can do. I guess. What sure. I'm to that's say. that's fair. That's fair. Uh, that's all I have. Do you have anything else? What holds the movie back? Yeah, I have I have some random ones to throw out. I mean, sure. it's not that it doesn't work, but the pop psychiatrist is the worst and I don't enjoy <laughs> his scenes at all. I'm just like, oh, my gosh, this guy doesn't that sucks, kind of I think is the point, isn't that kind but, of the point, though? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but but like him on the news right. uh, th- or the news channel dragged that scene is just like could have been shorter. Um, like I, said, I also think very that's, small that's one of the better examples um, of like a. a disappointing payoff because remember that they find out that wasn't even the zodiac they they trace the yeah, call to yeah, the mental yeah. hospital and but that was a long scene with a lot of tension to not yeah. go anywhere what uh, and like, which is part of why it's brilliant but also on the rewatch i'm like okay i kind of just can skip this part but like there are other scenes like that where for example where downey's character goes to get the lead and you think he might be getting murdered um sure and that scene has no real payoff it's a bunch of tension and nothing happens but that scene still makes me feel something. I don't really yeah. feel a lot in the scenes with the psychiatrist. Um, I don't feel tense even really. I don't know. Maybe I, maybe you disagree with me there. Um, let's see what else. I, 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 I could agree with that. I'm fine with that. Yeah, I put journalism movies. I don't ever really get the appeal. I hate to say it. Um, what? I Yeah, they're just not my thing. Sorry, John. What? Wait, wait, <laughs> you're not all the president's men spotlight yeah. other yeah. movies. You don't. Yeah, they're oh good. Oh my goodness. They're fine. Oh my goodness. They're fine. Maybe it's because we live in a time where journalism is dead. Um, okay. But okay. I don't I don't we really don't, know. We don't uh, need to drag 2020 into this. Uh um, the newsroom, I don't know. That's a uh, bad yeah. example. That was good but, for an episode. Uh, but, that was a that was a great one season though. Yeah, you're right. You're right. But I don't know. It just it doesn't always do it for me. And honestly, the newsroom scenes are where this movie drags. Um Especially total, if you, total, total disagreement, but well, keep going. Give, given our previous part of the conversation, it's when he gets out of the newsroom, Graysmith does the movie takes off. So you've already exposed yourself as a fraud, but um, <sighs> we don't need to sit with your contradictions, John. We can move on. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's move on. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll maybe well, and, approach that later. And I have got? one last one for what didn't work. And this is where films like this get tricky because they're almost, they're about a real life story. So it's hard to say that like real life people didn't work. Um, but I here I'll just throw out a couple. Our justice system question mark. Like, do we need to replace pretty much all police stations with either cartoonists or high school teachers that could break like break codes? I, I don't know. <laughs> um, it's it's really impressive. Like you already said, how bad these stations and in these departments aren't working and sharing 
information with one another. Sure. Um, and the level of snark that they have is not necessary. Uh, <laughs> let's see. What else? What didn't work? Actually doing what the Zodiac asked in printing his crap. Not the best decision. Got to question that True. one. True. Uh, worst handwriting expert ever. <laughs> Gonna throw that out there. Oh, here's my favorite. Alcohol yeah. and high stake jobs. Whether that's journalism, police, or being a handwriting expert, you can pick it. Nope. Um, doesn't uh, really work together. Doesn't, 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 it's a common fine. theme. Common theme all of this movie. Fine. And then here's just a question um, that I actually only thought of in this most recent rewatch. Why does it take Jake's character, Jake Gyllenhaal's character, that long to check on Arthur Lee's birthday? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I assume though because it, it, he couldn't get the information from um, the DMV. Wrong, right? Because remember, his wife puts like down the folder the di- on top of a picture he already had of his driver's license. Uh, then maybe I don't know. Maybe I didn't understand that part. Because I assumed that she had like found that through her job connections, and oh, maybe that is it. But wait, what? What job connections? Doesn't she work for the state in some regard, in some capacity? Now we're just connecting dots. I don't know. Now we are doing the Zodiac thing to the Zodiac movie. I just find it hard to believe that this guy who's looking at like astrological signs because he's investigated everything never looked up the primary suspect's birthday when he knew that the guy said, "This is my birthday." That's all I'm saying. Also, though, this is the whole thing. All of the, you know, it's funny. We could mention that with all of a lot of these points, uh, this is a lot of what cases like these cause to change in the way law enforcement works. So, yeah, you know, now there are databases where it's like, oh, you can find that very quickly. Now there are organizations like the FBI or the federal marshals or whatever uh, who could, you know, coordinate a large scale um investigation across multiple precincts uh but you're not wrong it, it's it's technically not not good uh yeah i can agree with that well like i said it's hard it's hard to say what didn't work is the real events of the story but you know maybe they <laughs> should be better at their jobs i don't know maybe they should maybe they shouldn't have been bad maybe those i did feel bad for the two cops who look like they're getting told off by their dad when uh Trump, yeah. when Toppy yeah. is like his what are you? he's like he's like actually holding his hands in his lap like literally like a little kid i'm like oh geez oh my oh, gosh geez. it's brutal I mean, the disappointment you were stupid to just let this guy lumbering away from a crime scene just like ah he's not you know uh we'll just let him go but uh yeah all the same uh any stray thoughts before we get into the essays Oh, yes. Tons. Oh, my gosh. Is Go. the best. I don't have any. Is the best line in any movie ever when that little kid in the beginning of the movie says F off and die to the people throwing firecrackers? Because <laughs> I laugh every time. I'm just like, what is he's just like F off and die. It's it's great. It's I appreciate that she gives him a hard time for it right afterwards. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a good thing to be remembered for. Yeah. You know, your last word to another person. Anyway, uh, that got dark. So here's a question that I have. I'm curious as to your answer. And that is, would David Fincher be a serial killer if he didn't make movies about serial killers? I don't I don't know if he would have gone that far because people who make movies, I, 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 I assume, are inherently a little boring. 
in other words like you know i i think that he would have he would have been doing something more extreme if he had a more extreme personality but uh i think the case is better than any other director i could think of yeah right except oh. maybe tarantino kevin spacey i'm sure he's directed a movie yeah Ooh, Dark. this is getting rough hey whatever he played himself yeah, in know. seven it's impressive there we go you we said that it. you said we shouldn't put look down on actors who play themselves in movies so uh turns anyway. out he was the monster all along oh boy um so who lets someone else tighten the bolts on their tires in the middle of nowhere and then why would that person get in the car with the person who tightened the bolts on their tire when their tire falls off when they start driving it was uh it was a different time can i tell you something <laughs> Uh, I, I forgot to mention this in my uh, my history with this movie, and uh, but can I tell you something creepy? Is that the I watched this movie a couple nights ago, but as Mike knows, a few months ago I moved to California, and in fact I live extremely close to a lot of these areas. Woo! That scene, the thing comes up at the bottom, and I'm reading it, and it says on a highway outside of Modesto, California. And I kind of sit there saying, I'm like, I was on that highway today. Oh, no. I drove on that highway like a couple hours ago. Cause I live like Modesto is just a, it's just an hour and a half away from me. Uh, so that's not, that's not relevant, but I was thinking about that. That's good. Yeah. That's it's good. good stuff. I got, I got one last thing. It's actually a new segment as part of stray thoughts for you, John. Okay. Are you ready? I'm excited. It's rapid fire. So oh. we're going to we're going to ask some rapid fire questions relating okay. to the characters of this movie. So first, okay. we're going to start with uh, our boy, Gray Smith. Yes. Uh, if you went on the first date that they went on together, him and his wife, <laughs> would you still date him afterwards? Uh, I, it depends on the second date is what I'm going to say. If, if so there he, would be a I, second date. I would give him a second date. I would, but, but the third, it'd be the third would really be hanging on a thread. That okay. second date would have to be impressive. Yeah. Would you wait until he included your kids in a murder investigation to leave him? Um, yeah, because that's fine. That's father, son bonding, father, children bonding. Okay. 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 I don't have so, any problem with that. Yeah. So you think I should get Adi involved in an unsolved murder mystery? I'm surprised you have it. Okay. Okay. Okay, let's move on to Downey's character. Um, if your life fell apart, would you A, live on a houseboat, B, drink all day, or C, play Pong all day? And if not, what game? I mean, for the record, he did all three, and it, and all three of them seem great. Uh, the I, houseboat, I just don't think you have the stamina for that, John. Certainly not for the alcohol, and I do get motion sick, so the houseboat might be an issue. But I did think it looked great. Um, I don't know about the alcohol. Pong looks boring as hell, and I can't believe people ever bought that. But I'm sure my great grandkids will say that about my, you know, uh, Xbox or whatever. So, um, but yeah, I think those are all great decisions. I I, I would champion anyone who who makes that goal in life. All right, last character. Let's talk about Lee. Let's talk about Is him. Anyone? Oh, not who, who I thought you were gonna say. Nope. Is anyone who does taxidermy not a serial killer? 
Yes or no? I will say they've had a rough go of it in culture, in popular culture. Uh, Do you feel like they're persecuted? And, and well, no, because the reason why they've had a rough go of it is because obviously they're all serial killers. Okay. I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable saying that. Good answer. Um, how many Come at squir- me, taxidermists. <laughs> how many squirrels do you have to find in someone's home and or freezer for you to suspect them of being the Zodiac killer? Literally one. Okay. If I good if answer. I saw one squirrel, I'd be like, "This is not good. We need to get out of here." It's a great it's a great throwaway line when he opens the freezer and the squirrels in there too. But uh, yeah. anyway, yeah. How much money would I have to give you to live for a night in Lee's trailer? Six hundred thousand dollars. OK, good answer. Good answer. enough to cover several years of income. I need to not yeah. there. That'd be a rough night. I guess I should mention, am I alone in the trailer? Oh, yes. He's, well, the okay. squirrels are there, too. Yeah, yeah that's fine. He's not there. <laughs> man how much would you need more if he was there assuming you can you can leave it to my family when i'm dead like uh <laughs> we'll say a billion i think they could do fine with a billion <laughs> that's that's right uh last question uh and lee is excluded from this question you cannot answer this with lee because that's an obvious answer which character would be the toughest hang from this movie I'm really disappointed that you excluded me from choosing Arthur yeah, Lee Allen. Uh, I think late era Paul Avery. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Uh, I'll also accept the editor of the newsroom, who just seems kind of boring. Uh, a little too straight laced, probably. Uh, oh, you know what? The kid from the beginning of the movie who shows up at the end in Canada or whatever. Uh he seems like a tough hang. Yeah. Do you know who that is? Have well, you- I know it's it's the guy from uh, Sonny, right? Yes. It's the leader of the yeah. O'Boyle family from Always yeah, Sunny. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's, been in, he's been in other things, but I, I did. Know. That is but what I thought of. I was like, oh, hey. a- well, and I like to think that the trauma he experienced made him into the character from Always Sunny. He but- kind of looks like him. Like, he, I, yeah. mean, I mean, he looks like the character, obviously, but I mean, he looks run down. And stuff, oh, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, oh, that, you. I- I definitely think that's the point. I mean, he's, I like that's terrible. Yeah. 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 I think Uh, I would go with gray Smith. Um, I really really? don't think I would want to hang out with him at the end of his run. Like before he writes the book when he's ruined his life and that's all he cares about. Like, I think I just get bored talking about the Zodiac killer with him. Like there's, there's a hard limit on that. There has to be like, like a point where you're just like, dude, I, I feel like we get it. Do you watch sports at all? Like, do we have, uh, he's like, in 1973 and you're like okay fine he's like what if the murders are corresponded to sports games has anyone ever looked that up let's do that let's get in on this on this zodiac investigation can you imagine gray smith with an iphone today and just how obnoxious oh that God. would be just wikipedia dives <laughs> just be one of the, i mean he would just be on in QAnon, probably oh my gosh. uh oh no too much too much no no just right uh can I, i'm gonna flip one question back at you okay who would be the best hang in this movie it's got to be toski right yeah like, i i don't think he'd there, there'd be a level where it's like obviously you don't respect me and you shouldn't but if we're just getting the sandwich together like that looks like fun i feel like yeah. I, I could do that and he's the only one who seems like he can have a real conversation with another human being in this movie yeah um at least like halfway 
I do think early era Downey would have been fun. He has a couple of barbs that are pretty funny. Quick wit. Or um, the coffee guy. And he drink, who, uh, drinks a lot. So. Yeah, oh, yeah. Which is great. What was that guy's name? Tony or something? Tori? I don't remember. I can't remember. Okay, well, we're now going to head into the part of the podcast where we uh, take part in what we call monologues, which is essentially where we pick a theme or a part of the movie, usually bending towards uh, spirituality or our worldview or something that just really intrigued us uh, from the subtext of the film. And we go a little bit deeper into it. And John, I believe that you are going first. So what you got? Yeah. So life is a game of expectations. I know for myself, the immediate future is often a source of intense anxiety. I tend to find that either I have a clear idea of what I think will happen and I'm anxious about whether that will really happen, or I have no idea whatsoever what's going to happen and I'm even more anxious about all the different things that might happen. And in either case, my anxiety is being driven by my expectations. An expectation is something that you anticipate will happen. And I think the key is that an expectation need not be driven by logic or experience. In fact, it rarely is. As often as not, we rely on our emotions to drive our expectations. Think of a time that you've been upset and hurt at the actions of someone, be it a partner or a friend or a parent even though you've never expressed your desires or expectations to them. That's illogical. It it makes no sense when you say it out loud, but logic isn't driving those interactions. And I think the result of this is that we tend to get wrecked over and over again by our expectations because they're driving and being driven by our emotional state. And this is why, incidentally, a lot of religions, in particular Buddhism, fixate on the idea of releasing your expectations because it understands that our expectations lie to us about what the world is and how we think it will be. Another great example of the emotional impact of expectations are puzzle games. There's this sort of unscientific formula that can be used to determine how much frustration the net result of a puzzle will be. That formula is that the period of unknowing must be proportional to the puzzle's payoff. So if I spend just a couple seconds not really getting it, the solution can afford to be very straightforward. But if I spend 15 minutes staring at a screen without having any clue what to do, and the solution turns out to be not really very interesting, I will become immensely frustrated and probably just stop playing. In both cases, I'm creating an expectation on the basis of my emotional state. If I put this much effort into this problem, then it must have a profound, surprising, or gratifying solution. But in reality, the effort that you put into a puzzle need not correspond in any way with the payoff or the solution. And this brings us to Zodiac, because I see this movie as a little ecosystem of expectations. Zodiac's characters contend with a potent mystery that unravels over decades and decades into an ephemeral wisp, an ungraspable, unknowable thing. Their responses belly the impact of their expectations. They become angry, frustrated, obsessed, 
listless or detached. They pursue and they retrace and they reconsider and they find that they haven't accomplished anything at all. Some of them give up, some of them double down, but all of them succumb to an emotional agony at their inability to find the light at the end of the tunnel. And that agony, that twisting of the soul, hints at the most dangerous part of this expectation game, which is the fact that reality so seldom gives us the gratification that we're subconsciously demanding. We've all been trained by stories, by games, by religions, beliefs, and by politics. We've all been trained to expect a payoff that's proportional to the input we put in. If I work twice as hard, the solution should be twice as good. And to an extent, that's not a bad thing. That formula exists to promote the goodness of effort and is particularly valuable in the realm of self-improvement. But once we apply that logic to other people, to the world around us, it starts to fall apart. I may spend all of my time and all of my energy on this one problem, looking for this one result that will finally reward me for my effort, only for that result to never arrive. Robert Graysmith in the film says, I need to stand there. I need to look him in the eye. I need to know it is him. His emotions have created what the gratifying last scene will be, but arguably that scene never truly arrives. Zodiac puts its viewers through the same agony. We expect movies to follow a narrative arc to have a rising tension, a climax, and a falling tension. We don't expect them to spin out into unknowing, to leave us unsure and unsatisfied. Fincher is baking this message deep into the plot and structure of his film, the message that the world is under no obligation to what we expect of it. And in spiritual terms, how you react to that truth will dictate so much about your capacity to be content in life. I think it's our nature to resist the idea that life will not provide us with a satisfactory meaning, will not cater to our ideas and our desires and our beliefs. And this goes back to the power in the spiritual idea that by releasing our expectations, we correspondingly see the world more clearly. It's a promise that we can stop anger and frustration from spilling out of our soul, that we can avoid the anxiety and fear associated with unknowing, that we can accept others on the basis of who they are and not what we think they should be. Instead of drowning in unmet expectations, we can be released into the world with clearer eyes and more open minds. film really yeah no, no, no. no nothing in there about no. it didn't talk much about uh anxiety or expectations i, I think i i was kind of reaching for that i'll be honest yeah you read that into it you need help i can live i mean i, I knew that anyways uh so my <laughs> first question for you mike is what is the hardest you have worked for an unsatisfying conclusion and I did put into parentheses, besides the Star Wars sequel trilogy. Well, that, uh, oh, well, gosh, I have to rethink my answer. 
Um, yeah, that because that's the obvious one. I I didn't want you to just take the easy way out. We all know. Yeah, Dexter. But, you know, just, Dexter's up there. Anyway, um, Game of Thrones is up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean that's that's a great question. I mean, I I definitely always go straight to breakups with that sort of thing, where sure. you try desperately to save a relationship, uh, and usually in a crazy way, it's your trying too hard that leads it to actually topple at the end. Um, yeah, because you just try to force the other person to love you again, and turns out that's probably not healthy. Um, but I actually think, you know, the more interesting answer is when it's unsatisfying in a way where it just doesn't change anything. Like you still get yeah. what you were searching for. Like I think of that with grad school. Um, you still get the degree, you get the knowledge, but then you, you graduate and it's not like your life changes forever. It's kind of on to the next yeah. thing. Now it's time to look for the job where you can apply those things and, even when I got a job where I could do that, it's still more hurdles. And, and there's something, there's something of a let down built into it. Like you were saying, that's inevitable because it's, it's not that it didn't deliver. It's that the delivery was never going to fix you or, or it was never going to be the end of, I don't know, whatever narrative you're playing about that season of your life. There's just going to be another yeah. season. Right. So in a weird way, it's like, it's, it's more, coming to realize that up until the point that we die that our lives don't have an end um that you learn kind of each time that you feel those expectations fail because you're waiting for some finale that's just not there i mean so does that make sense absolutely i think that's actually almost a better way of even thinking about it that you're the unsatisfying conclusion is not necessarily no conclusion in the context of Zodiac it is. Yeah. But sometimes it's the conclusion that comes and then you wake up the next day and you're like, Oh, um, I'm, you know, I'm still, nothing has really changed. Uh, you know, I was thinking of, it was funny. One of the answers I thought of for the question was when I was, uh, in high school or maybe middle school and I saved up. Yeah. Middle school. And I worked really hard. I had a job I saved up over a few weeks for a PlayStation two, uh, which is kind of dating us a little bit, but that's okay. That actually just celebrated its 20th anniversary. God, we are dying. Anyways, we are age is a, uh, or was it time marches ever onwards and we are, but that's right. Uh, but you know, and I got it and I got Gran Turismo four and I was so excited and I played it for a few hours and it was a lot of fun. And then I got kind of bored and I stopped playing and I sat there and I was just like, Oh, okay. <laughs> and, and I think it's the problem. I'll, I'll be honest. It's one of the things that I've had this, I've struggled with most of my life is I I'm definitely a retail therapy person. Like I very sure. much am like always excited to buy the next thing, particularly technology. I have a big Achilles heel for like, you know, a new laptop or a new TV or whatever it is. And I, it's not, I, I, I don't go so dramatic as to say like, there's no value in those things. I think that, uh, you know, they can be fun. They can, you know, there's nothing inherently evil about it, but there is that problem where I bring to it this expectation of, Oh my goodness, next week I'm getting a PS five and I'm, I'm going to be able to do all this stuff with it. It's going to be so amazing and I'm going to get it. I'm going to play it for a few hours and I'll be like, okay, that was fun. And then I'll just 
and then I'll just be sitting there like, okay, now I have it, but my life isn't changed. I'm, yeah. I'm still sitting here. Uh, I think that's one of the bigger ones I struggle with in general. And, yeah. and it reminds me of what you're saying where it's like, Oh, sometimes you do get the thing. You do get a conclusion, but then as often as not, that conclusion is like, okay, well then you wake up the next day and now what, you know? Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, that's where I kind of, you know, veer off from asceticism is I agree with you there. There's value in the experience of having fun. Right. And I think the problem is that, you know, kind of fundamentally what our expectations usually do is the experience isn't the conclusion that we're searching for in and of itself. Because if we are just saying, I want to experience something fun for five hours, then it wouldn't be unsatisfying. Right. Yeah. It's that whether we know it or not, we usually kind of like what you're saying, have this ephemeral conclusion underneath the surface about how that experience is going to change us. Right. And most of the time we can't actually identify that in the moment. We just feel disappointed when it doesn't happen. Yeah. Right. And I think, yeah, it's a kind of that process or result over results thing that we often talk about where it's like, if you can just focus on enjoying the experience of it, then it actually isn't unsatisfying. Um, It's the extra weight that we add to it of, well, that experience is going to fundamentally do this to who I am. And the truth is you're bringing who you are into the experience. And it's probably not going to do that at all. Um, Well, and I I think a lot of it is that thing of, of letting your emotions drive those expectations. Cause it's funny. It's one of the, the way you describe that. It's like, you know, if you say to me uh, in very straightforward terms, well, what will this new thing that you want to buy really do? I know logically, well, not much, right? I know it yeah. is five hours of entertainment or whatever, but you're right. It's like, oh, but, you know, I, I'm i placing all this other levels of expectations on it without even realizing it. And to be fair, we're ganging up on on me with uh, with retail stuff, which I volunteered to be ganging oh, up God, on. yeah. What a, uh, but what a greedy you know, this, snob. Yeah, I know. I'm the worst. Uh, this comes up with a lot of things. I actually see this a lot with friends of mine in travel. That I know people sure, who yeah. very much are like, I'm going to go visit this place. I've been planning it for years. It's going to change my whole life. And they will go and it will be amazing. They'll come back and say it changed my life. But then a couple weeks later, they're sitting there in a bar and I'm like, how's it going? And it's like, oh, I mean, good. I, I'm just back here, I guess. And it's just whatever. It's like, oh, well, you know, and even for a permanent change, yeah, right? We've yeah. talked about this a lot. People who are like, uh, you know, oh, I'm going to move somewhere and it's going to change my whole life. And it's like, well. Maybe, but you're probably not addressing the things that are really, you know, really impacting you right now. Uh, so, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, it's, it's all about it's realistic so interesting. Well, and again, it. I mean, yeah, there's a great quote that I, I don't know. It's basically saying wherever you go, there you are. Right. And it's yeah. this reminder that, you know, the new place may be an impetus for you to start seeking out things like mental health. Uh, and to start seeking out psychiatrists or to start seeking out uh, habit change and pretty structural changes in your life that will produce mental and emotional and, and behavioral health, right? But the the confusion that people often have is the expectation is the place itself will produce that in me. And it's 
almost never true. It's maybe the change is what jutted you out of the cycles that led you to feed those unhealthy behaviors or made you reflect on, man, why do I do that? And then you sought help. But at the end of the day, I mean, my mentor always says that life is an inside job. And if you don't in some way segue life geographical changes or um, financial changes or whatever else into dealing with that internal state, then yeah, it's like, of course, hey, I was a drunk in Tallahassee. I'm going to be a drunk when I move to Denver, right? Yeah. Why would that change? And I mean, I think that's the kind of delusion that so many of us hold is we just really what it is, is we misdiagnose where, you know, our suffering is coming from, where our patterns of brokenness are coming from. And then since we've misdiagnosed it fundamentally as being, well, it's because I live in this small town or it's because of I'm dating this person. Um, because we misdiagnose that the solutions are always going to be unsatisfying because they're not actually healing anything. They're not actually dealing with like the disease you could say, right. Yeah. Um, it's, it's cutting off the arm to try to cure the lung cancer. Right. And it yeah. just doesn't make sense. So yeah, I think, I think that's where my head goes with it, but it's a great question. So for me, what stood out is actually what always stands out to me whenever I watch Zodiac, which isn't a bad thing. I think it just does it perfectly. And that is the theme of addiction. I think more than any movie I've seen, Zodiac captures this universal human struggle with addiction. To which you might say, universal addiction? I don't abuse drugs or alcohol. I'm no addict. But bear with me for a second. You see, if we redefine addiction as not just being about substance, but as simply being a compulsive pattern of thought, emotion, and subsequently behavior that produces negative outcomes for ourselves and those around us, well, then I think we're all more addicted than we wish to admit. One of my favorite authors and theologians, Friar Richard Rohr, puts it perfectly in his book, Breathing Underwater. He writes, stinking thinking is the universal addiction. Substance addictions like alcohol and drugs are merely the most visible form of addiction. But actually, we are all addicted to our own habitual way of doing anything, our own defenses, and most especially, our patterned way of thinking. And I just think this nails it. All of us have internal cycles of thoughts or emotions, and as a result, external behaviors or habits that we turn to over and over and over again, no matter how much damage they produce for us or our lives. Many of us are addicted to production. We tell ourselves if we can just make enough or we can just be valuable enough by what we produce for other people, then we will matter enough to not fade away in their minds. Or we're addicted to recognition, a compulsive need to be recognized, praised, told that we're okay, determining our mental and emotional health according to the thoughts of others that we really can't control. You can fill in the blank, judgmentalism, chasing the next thing, fear, anxiety, anger, hate, work, power, money, sex, comfort, self-pity, fantasy, laziness, crisis, thrill. We all have something that we're just addicted to if we're being self-honest, that we set out each day to seek and to get 
and to forget over and over again. And more than any other, I believe that we as human beings are addicted to control. The belief that if we can dwell enough on every part of our lives, then we can get to this point where we can predict potential future outcomes. And with enough manipulation of people or events around us, we can actually prevent suffering from happening. We can prevent the bad things, quote unquote, from occurring to us. I think this is the universal addiction. We crave certainty, stability, and security. And feeling in control of our lives, others, our world, events around us helps us feel those things in a world that is, quite frankly, almost always chaotic. It's why we have those small coping mechanisms that we turn to in stress, cleaning, doing something repetitive. I know I shoot free throws. Patterns that make us feel that we are in control of even the smallest thing, little hits of control to give us a sense of safety in those moments where our world starts to feel like it's too big, like it's spinning, like it's happening to us, and we are not able to make an impact on what happens next. And for many, these compulsions never really show up in a way that blows up their lives. They come to the surface through things like being a neat freak or over-planning events, being prone to annoyance when someone is late looking at you, John, or pouting when an event doesn't go as expected. But left unchecked, this part of us, our humanity, can become truly destructive, and it can tear us apart when it collides, when we are forced to confront the unknowable or the uncontrollable, when it collides with what is truly chaotic in our world. That desire for control just goes haywire in those moments. And in that kind of breaking, it becomes a delusion that we often latch onto to make our world feel controllable again. It's where I think the craziest conspiracy theories come from. The belief that there is an ultimate evil pulling the strings of our world, something or someone making choices that produce and explain the most chaotic and horrifying and unexplainable events of our world. Things like school shootings or the worst terrorist attacks. We tell ourselves that these horrifying events are actually controllable, that there is a concrete, clear, central reason that they happened, and a concrete, clear, central figure or group that if we could just oppose enough, fight enough, defeat, stop, then we can make sure that these events never happen again, which in its own disturbing way is comfortable to us because it's way more comfortable than the existential terror produced from the truth. That single figures or random events driven by mental illness or bad luck or whatever else can cause such damage for such small, invisible reasons. That our world is defined by chaos. And that so much of it is unpredictable and impossible to predict and control. I mean, that is terrifying. And when we really accept it, it can be soul-crushingly horrifying to live within. So we turn to control to help us cope, even when it inevitably leads us to live in a lie or makes a mess of our lives. And I believe this movie captures that reality so powerfully. Through this Zodiac case, every single character is forced to confront something that becomes unknowable and uncontrollable, this pure symbol of our world's chaos. And then the film just shows us how they respond. 
And y'all, I relate deeply to how each of these characters tries to deal with it. At first, they approach it as they would any other wrong or any other thing that's out of place in their world. They approach it like something that can and will be solved with the right combination of actions, time, and perseverance. With just the right amount of control, they are going to crack this case and things are going to go back to being okay again. You watch each character turn to these normal patterns, expecting stability to fall into place once they just get the right things done. They get to cracking the code, chasing leads, finding clues, breaking stories, setting traps, and you see it in them. With each new clue or break in the case, they are just sure that that resolution that's bound to come from what they can control, that it's almost there. And their work to control the situation will produce that much-needed rest and return to stability. Until it doesn't. The days become weeks, weeks, months, months, years. The letters stop, the clues dry up, and the noises of the world give way to deafening silence, to dead end after dead end. And in that space, they struggle to accept the reality that they aren't in control. And like many of us, they resist it. They double down. Each character lets that delusion control. And they watch it grow. And they watch it give way to compulsion. Those patterns they rely on to try to cope. Detective Toshi returns to the crime scene over and over again. Even years later, feeding his regret. And despite his initial reluctance, he shows a way far too much willingness to jump back into the case whenever he can. Avery turns to alcohol, to numbing himself, to pushing everyone away, to telling everyone he doesn't care as he lets how much he cares spiral him out. And obviously, Robert Graysmith highlights it the most. What starts out as a desire to crack a puzzle becomes the obsession and compulsion of his life. He surrounds himself with every reminder of the case he can, compulsively keeping and looking through every paper clipping of the case he can collect, filling his house with file after file, missing his entire family's life to rush to every news story that breaks on the TV. This obsession and his compulsion produces some of the great moments of the movie, some of the most heartbreaking ones. Every time you see the look on his face when he's shocked and confused that other people's lives aren't tied up in this pursuit like his is, the moment when he realizes that the Zodiac killer hasn't actually killed 13 people. And Avery says, you almost look disappointed. Or the heartbreaking scene with his wife. when he says, I need to know who it is. I need to stand there. I need to look him in the eye and I need to know it's him. And she asks, is that more important than your family's safety? Of course not, Jake says. His wife says, why? Why do you need to do this? And he says, because nobody else will. She says, that's not good enough. And he can't face his delusion. So he just says, are you done? Can I go? And walks out of his family's life. It is this profound vision of this cycle. Obsession, compulsion, the spiral of the addiction to control. And it just captures how deeply he can consume and destroy people's lives. Obviously, he loses his marriage, his family, his career. He loses his perspective. He involves his kids in a freaking murder investigation. 
he loses his empathy for others like when he calls ruffalo character's house after he's lost his job and all he can ask about is small detailed questions about the case he loses pretty much everything except for this compulsive pursuit of certainty answers resolution control and in so many ways i kept reflecting this rewatch that Graysmith ultimately becomes the last victim of the Zodiac, an entire life lost in the pursuit of this ghost. And as the movie ends, even as he gets to look in Lee's eye and tell himself that it's over, we find ourselves wondering if that's true and if any of it was worth it. Can we even know if Lee is really the Zodiac? Does Graysmith just convince himself that he is so he can cling to certainty, so he can allow himself to move on without dealing with that deeper cycle at play inside of him that broke his life? And if he is, what do we make of the fact that he's never caught, that there's never actually justice, that nothing comes of his crimes? Was this book worth everything that Graysmith and each character lost? What do we make of the fact that that only those who choose to get out of the cycle leave this movie in any way whole. And what I love about this movie is that it has no desire to answer those questions or these larger questions about compulsion, obsession, control. It doesn't care to answer those for us at all. Like the chaos of reality that the movie depicts, it gives us no concrete answers, no easy answers. It simply names the addiction, shows us its spiral, and leaves us sitting quietly with its outcome. And in that, this movie always sticks with me. It doesn't give me answers. It just makes me reflect on where I desperately seek that delusion of control in my life. Where I obsessively and compulsively commit to patterns that give me a salve for the chaos, but corrode my humanity, my family, my ability to live in reality as it is, to experience my life where I define myself by what I go out seeking each day, though I never find it. It asks me to reflect on those parts of my life and then forces me to weigh and count the costs, never giving me answers, just challenging me to try to find a different way, however I can and whatever that is. So, John, um, I always love that phrase, stinking thinking, from Richard Rohr, and I especially love it in the context of, you know, the idea of trying to do <laughs> the same patterns over and over again, usually entirely inane, mundane, pointless things to give us like an illusion of control or illusion of stability. Um, I always love thinking about that. So is there, do you have anything that comes to your mind of something that you do to kind of provide that illusion, one of those set patterns that when you really kind of unmask it, you're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. It's kind of stupid, right? Anything you want to throw yeah, on the table? I mean, 
Well, and it's funny because I would actually, you know, I, I think that's such an interesting idea of the way that we have these small things that somehow give us that that almost illusion serum, right? That's like, oh, I for a moment in my brain, I'm like, okay, things are fine. I'm in control. And they can be such small things. I, I don't think they always have to be stupid, even if they're small. Because one of the things I I immediately kind of wrote down because I was thinking about it is the way that I uh, think I do that with art and music that, you know, in a state of anxiety or stress, or as I move towards that, I will often try to find an instrument to play and arrow find a, a recording to listen to or something mm. to, to, to work on. And I, I think that can get to an unhealthy state, but as it stands, there's nothing wrong with it. It is fascinating to me that, you know, sometimes it's something like that. Sometimes it's this drive of creation or, or even just almost, if there's almost something reassuring about having something that you are creating. Yeah. I sure. guess is what I'm saying. And like something that, cause arguably there's no greater control you have over something than when you create it, even though that's, you know, not always true, but, but I think certainly we have that illusion. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's an interesting exercise of well, where do I go in that anxiety? Where do I look for? And that's certainly something that came to my mind is the way that I use art to do that. Uh, I don't think I take it to an obsessive level compared to some of the characters in the movie with these murders, but it's something that I'm certainly capable of doing, if that makes sense. You haven't ruined a marriage and you know used your kids in your pursuit of music? Well, sure, but I mean, just one. So okay, that, yeah, everyone's yeah. done that. Yeah, everyone's, yeah. yeah, everyone's ruined a marriage for music. That's just I'm, a normal I'm thing. still human. I mean, um, yeah. yeah, no, it's funny. I, I actually, you know, there's like moments in my life as you kind of self-reflect that it is as destructive as anything depicted. You know, I think about that with things like sex in my life at times where, um, you know, you go to college and the obsession is like hooking up, get it like basically going to a bar so you can leave with someone. And so much of that is just like, can I feel okay for a night? Right. And obviously the, uh, sorry, this is way too much personal information, but you know, you always, at least for me, I always felt such shame afterwards. So it actually usually just made things worse, but you tell yourself each time it's like, Oh no, this physical touch, this, um, intimacy is going to be the thing that helps my world feel better. Right. But I actually think of it more <laughs> like as I've really kind of overly thought about my life, you know, in college, I really struggled with mental illness and depression and it was always basketball. And it was literally the fact that when I played basketball, it's just me, a ball, in one other person where I'm guarding them or have to get by them. And there is so much simplicity in that. And you're so in control, right? Either you mess up or you do the right thing. And for a moment, I would just get out of my head and be in the present moment. And that was it. And that the same time, even something as simple as that did become unhealthy for me. So it's not in and of itself bad, but I remember there was a season where I got in a really bad place and I was playing basketball four or five hours a day. Right. Sure. And, and it's just chasing that presence or chasing that 
uh, those windows of time in which I'm not thinking and I'm not trying to manipulate and I'm not trying to fix my life. It's just me and a ball and a game. And yeah. so, yeah, it's weird. It's a weird combination. It's pretty amazing that human beings can turn anything into a compulsive behavior that becomes destructive. But, mm. um, but yeah, I don't know. That's where my, well, mind and, and well, I think what's so cool about that too, though, is, is you, you kind of hinted at it there is the way that, the reason why I think we come to rely on some of those things is because they drag us into the present, yeah. which like you said, is, is actually a good thing. Um, but as always is a danger. Right. And, yeah. and in the same way, I mean, you can apply that to, I think the compulsions even at display in this movie where it's like, there's nothing inherently wrong with this, but when that becomes the centering that I should be getting from something else, and the centering and once I'm using it in that way, you're right. It becomes an addiction and it becomes a, I need this to just wake up in the morning. Yeah. And once yeah. you're there, it's like, Oh, this, this is maybe not ideal. Well, that's why this movie is so challenging on this front. It's actually why I didn't close with advice really, because to some degree it's good that he exposes who the Zodiac was. Right. Um, if it really is Arthur Lee, but at the like you're still sitting there at the end with that question of like is this worth it so what i mean so it's weird it's like oh i, I exposed the truth of a serial killer which is good and yet the why and the how of that is almost unanswerable in terms of it being good if that's even the right word for it um and and ultimately i don't know maybe maybe this is where i land on it so much of these compulsive behaviors or just these repetitive behaviors are come down to whether I do them consciously or unconsciously. Right. Sure. Like, do I know why I play basketball? And is that in a, am I doing it in a way that's for a, a healing purpose for a productive purpose? Like you said, to practice presence, to enjoy the experience, even going back to your monologue, just to be in a moment that I enjoy. Or is there some other reason that's unconscious that I'm not self-aware of that's driving it? And if I can say I'm conscious of why I do something and I can see that it's helping me, then repetitive behavior isn't even destructive, right? Yeah. But if it's the other side of that coin, suddenly, like you were kind of saying, it switches that mode of addiction where I need this for some, I don't want to say nefarious, but some darker reason that I'm trying to fill in or or to, you know, give my life some sort of purpose or structure or validity or or numbness that I just need. And I don't know. Maybe that's that's where you land. But Okay, thank you guys for listening. Once again, this has been This Film Could Be Your Life. We do have a final question that we've each prepared. Uh, before we get to that, though, uh, on the next episode, we are going to be talking about Alien, the Ridley Scott horror classic from... What year was Alien released? Alien film Wikipedia. 1979. Is this the oldest movie we've done? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think it is. So, okay. A horror classic. It'll be a lot of fun. Just in time. 
well, no, these are released on a heavy delay. So probably just in t- time for like January. Yeah. Christmas. Um, yeah. For a, a good Christmas classic alien. Uh, Mike, do you want to go first on the final question? I do. So John, who, and I'm going to let you decide time period on this. Who okay. would you be surprised by the most? If you found out they were the Zodiac killer. Hmm. Surprised by the most. I am going to say. Wait, I have to look up one age thing just to make sure this isn't too far out of line. So I'm going to go with Martha Stewart. (laughs) Uh, I think there's a lot of things happening here. The first thing is she does have that off off puttingly nice personality but we already saw that that was a bit of a front because she already went to jail for fraud so there's a part of it where it's like you know i'd be surprised but i'd also i think everyone would be like yeah you know what maybe that's Uh, the kind of one where you like connect the dots later and you're like well of course she was and some some friend of yours was like yeah some friend of yours was like well i I predicted that years ago and you're like no you didn't phil and you're like shut up but also you're like yeah okay you know what maybe so in a sense, it's surprising, but not too surprising. That's good. That's good. Um, I'm just going to read what I wrote, and we'll decide if you still want to answer it, because, uh, well, you'll see. My last question was, in five years, the Zodiac Killer is definitively pinned via DNA evidence, and it's a public figure. Besides Ted Cruz, who would you be surprised that it is? really wow yeah, dude that's what i wrote that's what i Man. wrote we went the same direction so you know just just let, let's just hear it what's your what's your take who you got i mean i, I want to say obama first i mean that's like the obvious one we're like no. man that would and it would be awful because people you know would be like well of course he was i'm not gonna say who those people are but they would act like that's not shocking obviously right. i would be shocked you're like what a soft-spoken young man i mean in, i mean if obama had squirrels in his freezer i don't know maybe it wouldn't be that surprising uh, i'm also just gonna say though i don't think I, I don't want to push back on you but barack obama is currently well no 59 yeah so he's 59 years old so you're saying he was nine when he first killed someone in, oh in yeah this that's world. a good point that's a good point mr rogers okay that you know what? If nothing else, there, there's there's a few issues, but ages work out. So <laughs> there you go. We got that. Like, because he was. What if that was what he meant by "be your neighbor"? Yeah, yeah. He would have been. In, he would have been his thirties. Uh, prime serial that, killer age. Prime serial killer age. You get the best serial killers are always in their thirties. Everyone. I'm not gonna that. lie. This is pretty much where. It's connect. I'm connecting dots. I don't know if you yeah. are, but I am. The ages match up. The ages match up and the ages match up. You know, the, the timeline in terms of ages does match up, too. That's worth yeah. noting. I think we nailed it. Yeah, Close I think we got case. it. Close the case. Close, case closed. Let's call Dan Toski. <laughs> Let's call old Graysmith and let him know he's an idiot. Old Graysmith. He's probably still alive. Anyways, Get venture okay. on that sequel. So it's either Martha Stewart or Fred Rogers. Robert Graysmith is still alive, so we'll we'll 
We'll call him in. We'll get him in here. It'll be great. Do you think uh, we should write him a letter as a bit? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on board. I think he, okay. I, I don't know how he could it. Well, we, we did it. We solved the case. <laughs> I believed in this this whole time. <laughs> Mike, as always, thank you for joining me. And thank you all for listening again. Next time we're going to be listening to alien and, nope. uh, Thank you all for listening. Next time, we're going to be watching Alien, and we'll see you then. Thanks, Mike. Thank you.